Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 16? Now as we come to John 16, we are coming to the end of Jesus' farewell address to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. The address covers chapters 13 through 16. And as we have said many times, Jesus has been with these men for roughly three and a half years, teaching and training them to take over for him once he returned to his Father in heaven. In that regard, much if not most of his ministry was preparatory. He was preparing, preparing them to carry on the work of the kingdom in his absence by giving them kingdom truth. Uh, these teachings were simply New Testament or New Covenant principles and doctrines that the Father had sent the Son to uh, teach his disciples. We saw in verse 15, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 15, where Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And guys, these teachings of Jesus were not only vital for their spiritual growth, of course they were, but they were also essential for their effectiveness in ministry. Uh, he was teaching them kingdom principles that really were unlike anything they'd ever heard before. They were all wanting the kingdom to come. They wanted to be prime ministers and the big shots in the kingdom. But they had the kingdom all wrong. And so Jesus was teaching them kingdom principles and also reinforcing that teaching through his own example. Principles like you want to be great in the kingdom of God? You got to be a servant to everybody. The greatest in the kingdom will be the servant of all. These were revolutionary ideas that Jesus needed to drive home to these men um, before they could really take over the ministry. Now here was the problem. Jesus only had so much time on the earth during his earthly ministry to teach them all these kingdom principles. He knew he wasn't going to get it done in the three and a half years he had on the earth. And so we come to chapter 16 and we read, I still have many things to say to you in verse 12 there, but you cannot bear them now. See, before he was taken from them, he wanted to give them as much kingdom truth as he could. But he knew he wasn't going to get it all in. So he says, look, there's a lot more I want to teach you, but you're not ready to receive it. Not yet. Verse 13, however, when the Holy Spirit, excuse me, when, the, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Let me paraphrase this. We talked about it last week. What Jesus was telling these men is this. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will continue your training by giving you the spiritual truth that you're not able or mature enough to receive at this point. He will pick up where I have left off, and not only will he finish giving you the New Testament uh, doctrine that I started to give you, but uh, he also will tell you things to come. Because of this section in John's Gospel and because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is so important to us as believers, I mean, He has come alongside of us. In fact, now He's in us, uh, guiding us, empowering us uh, for the work of the kingdom. And because it's such an important ministry He has in our lives, we decided that when we came to chapter 16, verses 5 to 15, we would begin a series which we've entitled The Ministry of the Holy Spirit. This series is just two main points. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to the unbeliever, the world, that would be verses 8 through 11, 
and then the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer, the believer in Christ, verses 12 to 15. Now, we've already looked at the first main point, and last week we started looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer. So again, let's read verses 12 and 13. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. So, in essence, Jesus is telling us here that the Holy Spirit, in his work to the believer, will first of all expound, or in other words, explain and expand the teachings of Jesus. How would he do that? Well, first of all, he would guide you into all truth, Jesus said at the beginning of verse 13. Guys, the all truth of verse 13 is the total revelation of God we call the New Testament scriptures. Now, it is true that not all New Testament truth really got started in the New Testament with the ministry of Jesus. Much of it did. But way back in the Old Testament, God gave glimpses of New Testament doctrine in the Old Covenant. All right, One of the things that sticks out in my mind more than others is Genesis 15, verse 6. With regard to Abraham, how it says that Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, Jesus, or the Lord, I should say, accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, this is such an important principle. In fact, we could say that the whole New Testament is really built on this one statement. It's repeated four times in the New Testament, twice in Romans chapter 4, once in Galatians 3.16, and then in James 2.23. So not all kingdom truth, not all New Testament truth started in the New Testament, but much of it did. But the Father then sent the Son uh, to expand and amplify New Testament truth. We call it the Gospels, right? And then He, Jesus, turned this responsibility over to the Holy Spirit uh, Himself, who would expand further, explain deeper, and complete the transfer and dissemination of God's revelation to his church through the book of Acts, the epistles, and then culminating with the book of Revelation. Think of the Gospels as the elementary school. These were the teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples when he was with them in person during his earthly ministry. But again, on the night before his crucifixion, he said to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you're not ready to receive them now. He had given them. Uh, spiritual milk, which would be basic New Testament doctrine. But the meat, the deeper things of God, would have to wait until they were mature enough to spiritually handle it. You say, well, when would that be? Well, we talked about it last week, but Jesus said it right here in verse 13. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, all the remaining New Testament truth that Jesus couldn't give to them before his crucifixion, the Holy Spirit would guide them into when he came on the scene. It's what Paul the Apostle referred to in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, the deep things of God, the deep things of God. So, guys, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer in Christ is, first of all, he will guide you into all truth. And last week, and we're still reviewing a little bit, but uh, we said last week the Holy Spirit accomplishes this in three ways. He'll guide you into all truth. He accomplishes this in three ways. Through revelation, 
through inspiration, and then through illumination. Now, just briefly, because we said the first two last week, revelation. Revelation is the act of revealing divine truth. It's a supernatural information about God and his will for our lives that we could never know if God hadn't condescended to reveal this information to man. As we said last week, we are stuck in a box called the four-dimensional physical universe. We can't leave this box, uh, regardless of what some people say, okay? Uh, I don't care how many times you meditate or look at your navel, you're not going to be able to poke a hole in the box, climb out, and find God. Job said it. Can a man by searching find God? Rhetorical question. Of course not, because God is spirit. We are physical. Now, God can invade the box anytime he wants. And when he does, think of it this way, he pokes his finger in the box and wiggles it around. It's called a miracle. Because he's changing things that are just the way they are, right? God wants the sun to stay in the sky for a whole day. Wiggle his little finger in the box. It happens, right? All kinds of stuff when God invades the box. But God routinely invaded the box to give us truth, all right? To give us truth. And uh, some of the ways that God revealed truth to us, divine truth in the past, was through, you know, angels, dreams, uh, visions, prophets. But as we said last time, by far the greatest revelation was the incarnation. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So guys, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit picked up where Jesus left off and gave us the balance of divine truth we call the New Testament canon of Scripture. Well, we have revelation, but then there is inspiration. What is inspiration? Inspiration is the divine influence of God upon the writers of the Scriptures which allowed them to infallibly communicate God's truth on paper, or in their case, on parchment. It was called, the, we call it the scriptures. The word of God that came to them then was written down, okay? Written down, the scriptures, right? Uh, uh, given to us on the pages of scripture. Paul the Apostle said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration, as we have said before, is the Greek word theonoustos, which literally means God breathed. And the idea is that God breathed life into the scriptures in much the same way he breathed life into Adam. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. And God did the same thing with holy men of God who were Moved by the Holy Spirit, God kind of breathed into them his word. They wrote it down for us. And Paul said that all scriptures God breathed. And then in Hebrews, and I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, he went on to say, and it's living. It's powerful. Okay? So that brings us to our study this morning. So we saw revelation, inspiration, now illumination. Uh, the third way the Spirit will guide us, or one of the ways he guides us into all truth. Uh, guys, illumination is the ability given to man by the Holy Spirit to understand God's truth as revealed in the Bible. Somebody has said, Revelation concerns the discovery of truth, inspiration concerns the communication of truth, 
and illumination concerns the understanding of truth. Or think of it this way. Revelation is the package from heaven containing divine truth. Inspiration is the vehicle that God used to, del to deliver the package to us. In other words, prophets, angels, visions, etc. And then illumination is, give is the ability to open up the package, understand what's inside and be benefited by it as we apply it into our lives. Guys, when we talk about the Holy Spirit illuminating the scriptures to believers in Christ, we're not saying that unbelievers, okay? We're not saying unbelievers can't know what's written in the Bible or that they can't even understand some of what's written in the Bible. There are many liberal theologians who have studied the Bible their whole lives, even memorizing large portions of it. And yet they aren't born again, and as such, they can't really interact with the Bible. And because of it, they reject as uh, reject much of it, many of the fundamental uh, doctrines of the Christian faith, essential doctrines like the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth, uh, the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Many of them think we get into heaven by being good. And even they deny the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. What am I saying? I'm saying it's one thing to know the words of a, a passage on the pages of the Bible. The devil knows the Bible. I'm convinced the devil can quote the Bible verbatim. I mean, the devil knows the Bible. His demons know the Bible. It's one thing to know what is written on the pages of the Bible. It's another thing to be able to interact with those words and passages so that they become living and powerful in your life to transform you. Somebody has said that the wisdom of the world is informational, but the Word of God is transformational. And I don't care how smart unbelievers are. Again, I've seen theologians who were brilliant men, and yet they weren't born again. They knew what the Bible said, what was written on the pages, but it never transformed their life because, first of all, they weren't born again. They hadn't given their hearts to Christ. And until you do that, the Bible is going to remain a dead book. It's living and powerful for those who are born again. But if you're not born again, it's a, just another dead book, wisdom of the world in many people's minds, a bunch of stories and legends and, and, and things that you know, maybe we can learn a few things from, but we can't really take as God's word. Well, that's the problem with a lot of these liberals, uh, theologians. They don't believe God's, the Bible is God's word, right? But, um, and, and, and why don't they believe? I mean, at any moment they can receive Christ and get saved. And, and all. I mean, I, I told you my testimony that before I became born again, I decided I was going to read the Bible. Because, you know, I mean, good people read the Bible. We were given a Bible for our uh, wedding shower. And I had it nicely situated on my coffee table for about a half a year. Because, hey, you know, we were newly married. You know, you got... Okay, we want God to bless his house. We'll put his, the Bible right there in the coffee. I never read it. I would look at it every day, and, and I, every day I look at it, I go, you know, someday I'm going to read that book. So, came into the new year, New Year's resolutions. I said, this year I'm going to read that, the Bible. Opened it up, started with Genesis. I think it took me six months to get to Deuteronomy, and I was almost dead. I almost, I, I almost killed myself. It was so dry. So boring. 
Then I went out to California to visit my parents who had just recently moved. My mom had recently gotten born again. Sat with her, talked with her. Somewhere along the line, I prayed to receive Jesus, came back, opened the Bible. And I'm not kidding you now. I, I did. She gave me a copy of the Living Bible, which is a paraphrase. I was working midnight, so I had a lot of time to read. And uh, it was a kind of a night watchman for most of the night. And uh, I opened that book now born again but i didn't realize the author was now living inside of me and that makes all the difference in the world and all of a sudden i understood it not i didn't understand everything but i understood a lot and i couldn't put it down that truth was burning in my heart i couldn't get enough of it literally and so it's a whole different ballgame but if you don't want god's truth if you don't think it's the word of God. Um, and Paul said, well, the reason that unbelievers don't um, become born again is because they want to suppress the truth of God in their desire to live unrighteously. So if you want to live in sin, you know, obviously becoming a Christian, even unbelievers understand, i got to change, okay? I'm going to start going to church, uh, reading the Bible, going to prayer meetings. Boy, I, I don't want to do that. Well, I didn't want to do that either before I got saved. But once you're born again, everything changes. It wasn't like I had to read the Bible. I, I got to read the Bible. It wasn't that I had to go to church. I got to go to church. I mean, these were things I now had a passion to do that I didn't before, right? But anybody can receive Christ. The Spirit of God will move in, and He will give you, a, 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 open your eyes to the reality of what's in this book. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit the believer in Christ is, first of all, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, finish giving you. And Jesus was talking to his disciples there, okay? This all happened in the first century. Finish giving you the complete New Testament canon of Scripture. Number two, he will not speak on his own authority, right? Verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Guys, this is Jesus' way of saying that everything the Holy Spirit says and does will be consistent. Will be consistent with what Jesus had already said and done. The idea that Jesus was communicating to his men that night and by, by saying this was that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, listen, would be a continuance of Jesus' ministry, not something brand new or different. The fact that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would take over and continue the ministry of the second person of the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus Christ, means that there would be complete agreement, continuity, and absolutely no contradictions between what the Spirit would say and do and with what Jesus had said and done. Listen, because God never contradicts himself. Now, let me just say this. People who claim that the Spirit of God led them to do things contrary to the example of Jesus, like living extravagant lifestyles. I mean, when you look at some of these guys on TV, they are living extravagant lifestyles. They own at least a mansion, maybe two or three. Uh, they drive the most expensive cars, right? Um, they sometimes, some of them own multiple jets, it's amazing what the, they strut around 
across the stage, these televangelists wearing $3,000 suits and a $1,000 pair of shoes, claiming to represent the one who said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And when he went to the cross that next day, the only thing he owned was the clothes on his back. And you're going to tell me you represent the carpenter from Nazareth? You're, you're flat out wrong. You're, in fact, you're being deceived by the devil. Also, anybody who claims to represent Jesus and teaches anything, I mean, claims to represent Jesus and the Holy Spirit is working in them and giving them doctrine that contradicts anything Jesus said, again, they're being misled by the, by, by the devil. I mean, I'm talking about essential doctrine now. I mean, there are good brothers and sisters who teach things contrary to what I believe, but they're non-essential doctrines, like the timing of the rapture, or are the gifts of the Holy Spirit still around today? These are non-essential doctrines. They're not going to affect your eternity. All right, so let's not divide over non-essential doctrines. But anyone who claims to represent Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit speaking through them that tells you Jesus was really not the Son of God, he was Michael the Archangel, that person is not representing Jesus, the true Jesus. Or tries to tell you something to the effect that Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead bodily. His spirit rose, but his body stayed in the tomb. You know what you say to them? Get thee behind me, Satan. Because that is a doctrine that will damn a person to hell if not believed. Paul said it. If you don't believe Jesus Christ is God Almighty and that he rose from the dead bodily, you are still in your sins. You can't, go to, you can't be saved. There's a lot of people out there that say a lot of things that the Holy Spirit told them to say or believes revealed to them that are flat out contradicting what the Bible has already said. Not just the words of Jesus. I'm talking about the completed canon of Scripture, Old and New Testament. I mean, I, I've heard people, the Holy Spirit blame for all kinds of things, for, for, for having said to them all kinds of things that the Bible clearly doesn't say, that clearly contradicted um, the Word of God. Such as, over the years I've heard um, people say, well, the Holy Spirit told me to divorce my spouse and marry a more spiritual person. I've heard this. I mean, they, they told the one gal told me, well, I really wasn't walking with the Lord when I got married. And I married the wrong guy. So now I'm back with the Lord, and the Holy Spirit told me, it's okay for me to divorce this bozo, find myself a spiritual man. <laughs> and, I, and I said to her, I said, look, maybe that's true. Maybe this is a guy you married. Maybe it wasn't in God's will at that time that you married this person. But when you said, I do, you were done. And now he is the right guy. And your job now is to love him, pray for him, and be a good, a good witness to him. Now, if there's physical abuse, yes, you must separate and, 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 and all and, and try to work that out. If he's cheating on you and so on, I mean, you do have legal, biblical grounds for divorce, although reconciliation is always God's first choice. But, but the idea is that it's amazing what I've heard people say. These are professing Christians uh, over the years that the Holy Spirit told them. One, uh, I've heard people say the Holy Spirit told them they could live together outside of marriage. Because after all, they didn't need a piece of paper to prove their love. A piece of paper being a marriage license, right? And I told them, I said, look, 
It's true, a piece of paper won't make you love each other. But without it, you really don't love each other either. Because how much do I love my wife before she was my wife by decided, you know what, I really don't want to marry you because I want to leave my options open. Let's just live together. And then what happens if I die? She has no access to my life insurance. She has no access to the resources that I have gained through working. If I loved her, I would want to see her taken care of when I was gone. That's what that piece of paper does. It's a legal contract. And the Bible does say, obey the laws of your, of your, of your government. And this is how our government ordains marriage. It's a legal process. You sign a piece of, it's a contract, right? It's just selfishness that says, I really, God told me we can just live together. God didn't tell you that. Your flesh told you that. Or the devil told you that. Or both. I heard, heard people say the Holy Spirit told them it was okay to marry an unbeliever. Because God was going to use them to bring this unbelieving spouse to him. First of all, the Bible says don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And God doesn't need you, by the way, to save that person. God can do it all by himself. So why don't you pray? And if this guy or gal is really the right one for you, pray and wait for them to get saved. If they're really, it's really God's will that you marry this person and God says don't be an equally open with an unbeliever. God's going to save the person, right? And then you can marry them. But this idea that God told me that we can get married, I can marry an unbeliever, and then down the road he's going to use me to save this person. What I have seen 99.9% .9 of the time is the unbelieving spouse pulls the believer away from God even farther. Or how about this one? The Holy Spirit told me he made me gay. Now we laugh, but it, look, I was telling first service, I have a heart for gay people. I, I don't have animosity in my heart for the gay community. I've got gay family members. I want to see the gay community come to, come to Christ and go to heaven. I want us all to be there. But I'm not going to help them by making them think God made them that way. The Bible is very clear. God didn't, He condemns homosexuality in both the Old and New Testaments. He loves homosexuals, hates homosexuality. And there's just no way around that. I mean, not to mention all the other craziness that is not consistent with the already revealed Word of God that people blame the Holy Spirit for, like holy laughter and people making animal noises in churches and shaking violently and being slain in the Spirit and any other kind of bizarre manifestations that they attribute to the Spirit of God. It's a lot of weirdness going on today in churches, isn't there? I was telling first service, my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, said he was at a... a, a um, a meeting of, of, of Christians one time. I don't know how he got there, if he was invited. Anyways, it was like in an auditorium. And Chuck said, I sat down, and as soon as the meeting began, I realized right off the bat, right away, that uh, I was in the wrong place. He said, because from the time the opening prayer, people started yelling and screaming and running around in craziness. He said, one guy started running around the auditorium yelling and screaming with these Indian war hoops. 
And, and Chuck said, you know, right about that time I, w- I was leaving. So I walked outside, and all of a sudden, here comes this guy who's running around screaming like, you know, with an Indian war hoops all over the place, comes running out, outside, gets on his, falls on his knees and starts banging his head against the concrete sidewalk. And Chuck said, sir, what are you doing? The Spirit's making me do it. The Spirit's making me do it. Chuck said, sir, if you want to act that way, that's on you. Don't blame it on God. Spirit not making you smash your head against the ground. This is how undiscerning so many professing Christians really are, right? We have to be careful that this, we don't attribute to the Spirit of God goofiness, craziness. The Spirit of God, is not He's not the God of chaos. He's the God of order. Not the God of chaos or confusion. All right, so under the first point of the Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer, the Holy Spirit will expound and expand the teachings of Jesus, verses 12 and 13, uh, by doing that, he will guide you into all truth, Jesus said. He will not speak on his own authority. He will never say anything that contradicts what Jesus said. And number three, we'll end with this. He will tell you things to come. We call that prophecy, right? Guys, why is prophecy so important in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer in Christ? Now, before I tell you why, let me first just say that roughly 27% of the Bible is prophecy. So any church that refuses to teach prophecy is refusing to teach more than a quarter of God's word to their people. Think about that. And I, and I say that because a lot of churches will not go near prophecy. I've heard pastors say it's too contradictory, it's too confusing, it makes people uncomfortable. Uh, you know, and, 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 and when you're trying to keep people in the, in the seats, you don't want to say anything that's going to be too negative, maybe drive them away. So pastors want to keep things, not all, but many, keep things nice and comfortable. But they're doing something Paul the Apostle never did, would never do. They're not giving their people the whole counsel of God. Remember what Paul said? In Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27, he said, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Everything God gave to me, I've declared to you. How dare any of us think, well, but you know, I'm going to edit the word of God. I'm not going to give people everything as a pastor. I'm only going to tell them what's positive and uplifting. You'll stand before God and give an account. How dare you edit God's word? I've never seen a Bible yet in a book, Christian bookstore. When I walked in, it said, the Bible, updated and revised. That's a lot of churches, though. That's their testimony. And so, guys, prophecy is important, and I believe vital, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer. Why? I'll give you two main reasons. We'll look at the first one today, pick it up next week, the second. Two main reasons, vigilance and validation. Let me say it again. Why is prophecy so important in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer? Two things, vigilance and validation. First of all, vigilance. The dictionary defines vigilance as, and I'm quoting, to be, to be on guard against, to be on the lookout for, to watch alertly and carefully for something, especially for coming danger. 
Now, with regard to Bible prophecy, the vigilance I have in mind is vigilantly watching for the return of Jesus Christ. Of course, we are commanded in Scripture to be vigilant against evil. One Scripture comes to mind, 1 Peter 5.8, where Peter said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Yes, we are to be vigilant against evil. But over and over again, Jesus commanded his church to be vigilant in watching for his return. Turn to Mark chapter 13. And let's pick it up in verse 32. This is one of many we can look at. But this one sticks out in my mind as one of the, mo one of the more, um, well, forceful. I don't know if that's the right word, but... Jesus really wanted to communicate to his disciples the importance of being vigilant in watching for his return. This is one of the passages, I think, that really communicates that. Uh, verse 32, Mark 13. But of that day and hour, no one knows the coming of Christ. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch." Wow, kind of gives you goosebumps. Four times in those five verses, five or six verses, Jesus stresses the importance of his people watching for his return. Guys, let me say this to you. Watching for Jesus' return is not the same as waiting for Jesus' return. A lot of Christians are waiting for Jesus' return, but they're not watching for his return. What's the difference? Well, if uh, I invited you over for dinner and you told me I'm going to be over around 6, uh, you know, and I wanted to make sure that everything was ready to go, I would be watching for your coming. Now, if I was just waiting and I got busy doing some other things, you might come and I might, you know, you might catch me off guard. But if I'm watching, if I'm standing by the window and I'm watching for your coming, you're not going to catch me by surprise. I'm going to be prepared, right? And, and that's the, the, the visual I want you to kind of have in your mind's eye with regard to Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't tell us, hey, wait for my return. He said, watch for my return. Very important distinction, right? And guys, the reason that God didn't tell us the day or the hour when Jesus was coming back is because, listen, we would no longer be vigilant in looking for his return, watching for his return, and that would lead to laziness, carnality, and I believe a lot of sinful living knowing that his coming was still, you know, not a long way off. I got plenty of time to get right with God. Right now I'm going to just sow some more wild oats. He's not going for another three, five, ten years, 50 years. I mean, you know, 50 years. If we knew that the Lord was not coming for another 50 years, I guarantee you the church would be in worse shape than it is right now. People would be like, well, I'll get right with God a couple of days before I die. Except nobody knows when they're going to die, so that's no... Not a big help either, right? But the idea is that 
This was something Jesus drove home all the time, especially the closer he got to the cross. I'll read you from Luke chapter 12, verses 43 to 46. Jesus said, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find him so doing when he comes. Serving faithfully is the idea. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware. And he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. I don't have time to get into all that today. I'll let you dig that out and look at it on your own. But guys, being vigilant and looking for the Lord's return is important for a number of reasons. I think what the main one is it promotes holy living. John said it in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 3. Everyone who has this hope within them, who's a Christian with the hope that Jesus could come for his church at any time, listen, purifies himself even as Jesus Christ was pure. If I really believe that Jesus Christ could come at any moment for his church, and I could be caught up in a second, a twinkling of an eye, to meet the Lord near, to stand face to face with my Savior, well, that should promote holy living. I shouldn't want to have him all of a sudden, boom, I'm standing in his presence and I was involved with sin on the earth. The Bible says many Christians are going to be ashamed at his appearing. Now, they're going to heaven because we're saved by grace. But it's not going to be a joyful time because they were not faithfully serving the Lord. They were serving the flesh, living a carnal life. And Jesus came and caught them off guard. He didn't want that to happen. That's why he constantly uh, encouraged his, his people to be watching for his return. The implication was serving him faithfully so that when he came, you wouldn't be ashamed, but you could hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Now, we're done. Let me just close with this because we'll, we'll use this as a segue into next week. But being vigilant... Being vigilant and watching for Jesus' return wouldn't be possible unless he, and of course the Holy Spirit, hadn't given us signs to be watching for. I mean, we couldn't watch for his return if God in his word hadn't told us what was coming in the future to be on the lookout for that would indicate the Lord's return was getting nearer, right? I mean, guys, what makes prophecy so important? with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer is, without it, we couldn't be vigilant. We couldn't be vigilant, right? I mean, how can I really be watching for the Lord's return if God doesn't give me signs, you and me signs, to look for that indicate we're getting very close to His return, right? I mean, I was, I've said it before. I mean, I forgot what year it was. I think it was 99. We took the kids... Uh, well, our first trip to Disney World was back in uh, 96. And I'd never been to Disney World. You know, and the kids were young, and we were excited about going there. And, of course, Disney has gotten a little bit anti-Christian since then. But you know, it was we were planning this trip for a long time. And so we were going to drive a two-day trip. And we started out. And uh, the family vacation, you know how that goes, right? Uh, you start out singing. 
Uh, you don't end up that way usually. But no, this was good. Uh, we started out singing. But um, I don't know how many. It was like, I think it was like 1,350 miles from Chicago to Orlando. I think that was six in my mind, right? For the first 1,000 miles. I, I think maybe we saw one sign for Disney World, right? Because it was a long ways off still. But then all of a sudden the signs started coming. You know, first every 100 miles, 50 miles. And then after that was every 20 miles. Then when we were about five miles away, the signs were like right on top of each other. The same thing is true with the coming of Christ. For many, many years, people didn't have really any sign. They had the word, but they didn't have any fulfilled signs that Jesus' coming was getting there. You know what the biggest one in our lifetime was? May 14, 1948, when Israel became a nation. God had prophesied that in the Old Testament. It had never happened before, though. Never was a nation, no longer a nation for 2,000 years to be regathered into their country to be a nation again. Had never happened. And plus, God said, when they, I do bring them back and gather them as one nation again, they're going, going to again speak Hebrew. Never in the history of mankind had a language that had been used, but then had died out for 2,000 years, been revived and used again as the native tongue of a, of a people. It was such an incredible event when it happened. And L.A. Times ran a two-page article, a story, uh, covered uh, two pages for a couple of days even. But what a miracle that was, that Israel was back in their land and they were speaking Hebrew again. In fact, it was such a, for many years, theologians thought, this can't be literal. This, this can't be literal. It's got to be allegorical that the Jews are going to come back into the land and be, become a nation again. They, they, they can't be real. Let's talk about the church. <laughs> you got people that are always taking what promises God gave to Israel and putting them on the church. And when it happened, May 14, 1948, all of a sudden people start, stopped and said, wait a minute, if God was literal about this prophecy, what else has he been literal about? It started a whole new hunger for prophecy. And we have been the recipients of that. I cut my spiritual teeth on Bible prophecy. Back when I got saved, everyone was into prophecy. I don't know what happened. We're closer now to the return of Christ than we were back then. We should be more excited, but churches have turned off of prophecy. I don't know what to make of it. It's the devil. Okay? So one of the main reasons that the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will tell us things to come, prophecy, because he wants us to be vigilant, always watching for the Lord's return so we don't get entangled in the cares of this life, but also for validation. We'll look at that God willing, next time. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Father, we ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. And that, Lord, you would give us grace to, uh, to um, submit to the Spirit's leading and power in our lives. That we would be, uh, Lord, um, following you and submitting to the Spirit's control. And we just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.